Welcome to Indisputable. I am Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie and Benny Carollo is here once again. I feel like I just left you. Um, it's always great to be on with you and um, it's going to be a great show. And I know you're going to have some interesting commentary. I think we should, Benny, jump right into it and begin in Hollywood with a question, really, because we don't know how much longer Jonathan Majors is going to be part of any Hollywood scene. It seems like every day, every hour, something else drops off of his plate, something lucrative. So here's what's going on. Majors has been dropped by his management team, um, which is huge, his publicist as well. And now another blow for the Creed three star, Jonathan Majors, amid domestic violence charges that we've been detailing for you, the allegations, more and more projects are severing ties with the actor, despite text released from his criminal defense attorney. Remember those that showed the woman he had the altercation with seemingly taking the blame for their fight. Jonathan Majors has been dropped from a slew of projects since um, we're learning on good authority, including protagonist pictures, the feature adaptation of the Walter Mosley novel, The Man in My Basement, an ad campaign for the Texas Rangers Major League Baseball team, as well as an unannounced film, fifth season's Otis Redding biopic, which the Emmy-nominated actor was circling. All great projects. Now, Majors is facing domestic violence allegations out of New York City after a March 25th incident involving a dispute with a 30-year-old woman, the unnamed victim was taken to the hospital with minor injuries to her head and neck, according to authorities at the time of the incident. Majors is scheduled to appear in court on May 8th after being charged by the New York City District Attorney. Now, just earlier in the year, Majors was on top of the world, the other side of the headlines, having a standout 2023 with Creed 3, Ant-Man 3, grossing a combined 745 million worldwide. Bad news just keeps rolling in for the actor just earlier in the week. As we said, the management team drops him, the publicist as well. However, two and a half men actor Charlie Sheen. And I do think this is a fair comparison, right? This was what Deadline put up for their, you know, their little ticker at the top of the website. So two and a half men actor Charlie Sheen, who has surely a tumultuous history riddled with domestic violence, substance abuse, and a host of legal struggles, just announced yet another TV show. Seems Charlie Sheen has never stopped working. Always on the A-list, no matter what he does. In fact, I think they crave it when he does bad things, allegedly. Some proven. And Cassie News, sure to make headlines and turn how to be a bookie instantly into one of the most anticipated new series of the year. Sheen is set for a recurring role in the single camera comedy headlined by Sebastian Maniscalco. Hails from Two and a Half Men studio, Warner Brothers Television, which also means that even when you mess up with Warner Brothers, if you're Charlie Sheen, they'll have you back. And I can't wait to have reports about the contract and the money that he's going to make on this. It's going to be huge, I'm sure. So now let's just take a look at some of the other headlines involving Sheen, though, over the years, because there's so many to get into. They go on. Charlie Sheen arrested for domestic violence. Charlie Sheen to Denise Richards. I am going to sever your head and mail it to your father. That's interesting. Wow. Charlie Sheen sued for assault, sexual battery by dental technician. 
Charlie Sheen's wife claims knife threat and assault. Landing the role in Chuck Lorre's How to Be a Bookie comes 12 years after Lorre's dramatic falling out with the two and a half men star where Sheen's public meltdown, verbal attacks led to Lorre's firing. Now the two have reunited and they seem to be back in business again. And so Benny, I'm all for people finding their way back to each other, falling in love again even. Do whatever you want to do. I make no conclusion, draw no conclusion about Jonathan Majors and what did or didn't happen in that car in New York City with a woman. I know what it looks like and some things seem like textbook, okay? And I'll leave, put a period after textbook and won't insert another word. Hollywood, just like the rest of society, it just seems like there's this, um, I don't know, unequal treatment. What say you? No, 100%. And it's all part of like really this larger trend. So like, first and foremost, it, there's just this selective accountability that is constantly pushed in our society, right? There's there's a selective uh, accountability. It's especially predominant in like Hollywood. And you'll notice that certain features, I mean, let's be real. If you're privileged and you're white, like you're going to have a million people who are like bending over backwards saying, oh, what about a redemption arc? What about can people have character growth in these things? And this is actually where... I kind of want to get into like a lot of people really like just absolutely mangle and abuse like abolitionist frameworks and like theoretically progressive language on how we work towards accountability and like non-carceral forms. What people always forget about like an abolitionist framework when it comes to justice and like restorative justice, rehabilitative justice is that the first step is always somebody being removed from any potential position of power that they could possibly use to be harmful in one way or another. If you are not doing that, then there's no rest of the process that can even reasonably happen. If people are allowed to hold the positions of power that they have, well, then they're allowed to continue to cause harm to other people. And so they aren't going to have like the real instructions, like, incentives to actually change their behavior to actually grow as people and have actual like reconciliation and so that's one of those things where you'll notice right uh that some people when it comes to accountability get the book thrown at them and then other people you have people who just want to completely you know immediately jump to oh what about rehabilitation you know what about a personal growth and all these things and it's just very very frustrating to see language from theoretically like progressive movements, right? To see language that is quite literally just taken out of the mouths of abolitionists and then twisted in such a way to actively support white supremacist aims. I, you make so many valid points with this selective, uh, you know, accountability. I don't know that Charlie Sheen, um, Benny ever got a timeout unless it was self-imposed. Remember when he was like, standing on top of buildings, talking about tiger blood and, you know, whatever, whoever he was arguing with. But some of this stuff is really serious. It's really serious. And it doesn't sound like Hollywood ever slapped him down. Do you think that because he's also a Nepo baby that, you know, Martin Sheen is beloved and seems like a decent guy from, you know, outside looking in, this is his son. And so did that perhaps save him? Because Johnny Depp would say, well, I, I was blackballed from some things. I, you know, I got strong feelings about that one too, but I'll let you talk. <laughs> I don't know who Martin Sheen is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. 
Okay, I love you, okay? And somebody, you know, we've got this crack, Dr. Richie has this, this uh, crack investigative team behind the scenes and they're good for information, but didn't Martin Sheen play the president or something on that show? They'll, they'll get us the answer. Martin Sheen is a beloved Hollywood star. I'm getting a thumbs up and he played in whatever that series was, but it was wildly popular. I didn't watch it. Surely you didn't either, okay? But this is why I love you. Suffice to say, when your daddy's on the A-list in Hollywood, that could maybe have an effect on whether you receive any comeuppance. No? I don't know who Charlie and Martin Sheen is. I love it. But yeah, definitely having A-lister parents, I think, can carry you a long way. Oh, you're beautiful. I just think you want to move on, don't you? Well, let's move on. It's okay. It's okay. We'll we'll keep seeing how this this Jonathan Major story plays out and if he'll ever work again. And I think that's a fair question at this point. Will he ever work again? And then do some of the comparisons where I'm not advocating for him to get something or to not be pulled from something. I'm just saying. Is Hollywood fair now? Now the Netflix uh, beef stars, showrunners, silent on David Cho. Do you know what's going on with David Cho? Because a lot of people are talking about this one. Wildly talented artist, musician, uh, celebrated actor now on the Netflix show Beef. David Cho has sparked outrage by detailing how he raped a black woman in a recently resurfaced 2014 podcast. And no, we're not going to let you hear it. He wouldn't dare let you hear it now, but he did say these things and apparently doesn't want to own them and is now kind of intimating that, well, it's just, you know, one of those things that I was joking about, half truth, whatever. 2014, Joe had a podcast called DVDASA. He graphically describes forcing a black woman masseuse into sexual activity during a massage session. Here's the transcript of the podcast spoken by Cho while he was at a massage parlor attended by a therapist named Rose. So I just take her hand and I put it on my genitals and she just holds it there. He told co-host and adult film actress Asa Kira before saying it was horrible and adding she wasn't doing it. He continued to describe the encounter saying the therapist definitely wasn't into it, but that she was not stopping it either. Cho said he pushed the woman's head down, forcing her to provide oral sex. Yeah. The comments received instant backlash by co-host and adult film star Asa Akira. Ew, you're basically telling us that you're a rapist now. Well, Cho replies to that, yeah, before answering the other guest questions about the masseuse's appearance. What is wrong with you guys, Akira asked. Who cares what she looks like? Dave is telling us he's a rapist, a successful rapist. Cho then laughs because rape is apparently funny to some people. The Center for Pacific Asian Family and South Asian Helpline and Referral Agency sharply criticized the actor and social norms surrounding this event. Cho's story reflects the harsh reality that men and women alike continue to believe and perpetuate the dangerous myth that coerced sexual activity is not considered assault or rape. By legal definition, you are committing an act of sexual assault when you do not receive consent. The organizations wrote in a statement based on Cho's telling, 
the masseuse's repeated protests in addition to his physical coercion indicate that she was not consenting to the acts he requested. The confession also received a plethora of backlash on Twitter. And you know, they, they, they go in on Twitter. David Cho's rape confession is shocking to me, like the culture we live in is horrific, but to think you can just graphically detail how you rape someone and still wind up on starring in this TV show, jail for everyone involved. Wow. However, much of the backlash was moderated by Cho himself, who was listed as the copyright holder and party requesting the takedowns, which is why we can't let you listen to it. You see it there, withheld, copyright holder. Cho has now claimed that the story is fictional, as we said, since waking to a sea of heavy criticism. That didn't happen, I just made it up. Well, who even thinks like that? That's a question I wanna ask you, Benny, but I'll go on for a moment. 2014 episode, I relayed a story simply for shock value that made it seem as if I had sexually violated a woman. Though I said those words, I did not commit those actions. It did not happen, he said to NBC News' Kimmy Ann. While Cho's actions attempt to convince people that the allegations are false, Brio writer Monique Judge had this to say. The issue isn't whether or not the story is true. The issue is why use black women as your punching bag. You owe victims of sexual assault an apology. You owe Rose an apology. You owe every woman who has ever been afraid to come forward with the story of her sexual assault an apology. You owe black women an apology. Let's get to it, David Cho. Netflix and the cast of Beef have remained silent on the matter thus far. However, details have surfaced about Cho's role, which was attained due to his personal friendship with the creators, but was originally met, meant rather for actor Stanley Tucci. Hmm. He was talking about being abandoned by his family, and I was like, the way he's talking about it just feels so Isaac Lee says, adding that Cho happens to be friends with these creators. So Betty, do we need to discuss, debate whether the truth or fiction of this Rose character and these horrific storytelling, these allegations, do we need to even know if it's true or not to weigh in on how gross it is? I mean, I guess it cuts two ways because like on some level, it I guess does from like a legal justice standpoint matter a little bit as to whether or not it's true. I mean, I don't know what statutes of limitations are, but you know, then again, the reality is unfortunately in the United States of America, sexual assault is not something that gets prosecuted very often. Unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of cases uh, police like won't even investigate even if you do report it, but even more don't even get reported in the first place. But then the question of whether or not it matters if, if it's true, the fact is this is what's going on in this person's head. Like, and that right there is part of a larger problem. The fact that somebody is comfortable telling a story like that, the fact that somebody thinks that telling a story like that would be good content for a podcast, the thought that they thought that other people on that podcast would be receptive to that as though it's normal. The unfortunate reality is, is a lot of people are willing to accept that as normal. The unfortunate reality is there's a reason why. The fact that he is willing to tell stories like that and the fact that so little accounts of sexual assault actually get reported or actually get prosecuted 
are really the same issue at the core. It is because our society fundamentally still treats women like they should just be the property of men, and especially true when it comes to black women in our society who are even further dehumanized by the white supremacist justice system that we have and the white supremacist culture that we are living in. And so fundamentally, there's this constant dehumanization and sexualization of women more broadly, especially black women, and throw on top of that all of these different layers of misogyny, throw on top of that the layers of you know, people wanting to like sound like edgy, like these men who wanna sound like they're some sort of tough guy, and then quite literally start like, putting out stories like this, and it's just absolutely horrific. And it is so, so shameful that anybody telling a story like this could get any job on anywhere, much less in Hollywood, where they're gonna have some sort of like public influence. And it's just, it's just deeply, deeply disgusting and speaks to a larger issue in our society, um, a larger issue in our society where femininity more broadly is seen as something that is lesser than and something that is, you know, uh, easily violated without any type of like really concern for for humanity. I guess I don't know. There's a million layers to this, and There's this is so a really many. disgusting story. It really is, and you know what else? I think that that black women and perhaps all women to some degree get punished for after they are victimized by these abusers in this kind of way. When a woman isn't believed, moves on, pulls it together, presents well enough, is seemingly okay enough. The next punch to the gut is, it was not that big of a deal. And you didn't follow a police report or whatever else they can come up with. And I wonder your thoughts on that, because it's like you get, you get punished over here just because of who and what and how you were born. And then you get punished over here for surviving the victimization and the assault. And I just think None of this was funny. And the giggles from Cho back then and the lack of remorse in the statement today. I, maybe I missed it, Benny, maybe you heard it. But I think that even though it was almost 10 years ago, it's today for him. He can be judged by it today. Most definitely, 100%. Because we're still facing with the same issues today. We're, we're still fundamentally facing the same issues today. And this goes to something that I think I was talking with you about last week about default perspectives, where like quite literally our society is not trained to view the world through the lens of women, right? Through, through women's like eyes, right? We are trained to, by default, always only ever look through the perspective of men to the point where there's just this systemic dehumanization and complete disregard for how women experience life. And so like, yeah, like it's so, so infuriating when people are survivors, like very often they said, oh, well, you know, it can't be that bad if you move forward. But no, it can actually be that bad. We shouldn't be putting like burdens on people who are victimized right? Like fundamentally, we need to have real systems of support, but it's all this self-justifying system because we know on the front end, people aren't immediately believing. We know that on the front end that people are not believing when they're victimized. And then after the fact, when we force people to recover on their own without any support, then turn around and say, oh, well, if you manage to recover, then obviously that must mean it wasn't that big a deal. That really is just a self-justification for the lack of action from from the from the lack of action from everybody else around in that situation, right? Yeah. Like from our justice system, from people in the community, you name it. Because the truth of the matter is, if somebody's a victim of sexual assault, odds are it is somebody 
that knows them, right? Most of the time. And a lot of people are unwilling to have the tension, the discomfort of calling out somebody that they know personally mm -hmm. because somebody else they know was victimized. And it is that discomfort, that fear of little bit of discomfort that actively puts people in danger. And if you think you're uncomfortable calling out somebody that you know, think about how uncomfortable the victims are knowing that you're unwilling to call them out. Yeah, and look at the debate because, you know, I'm I'm going to move on, but the debate is like, well, should he have to lose everything? It's like, should he have to lose everything? What he's doing work-wise is a privilege, not a right. Women have a right. Everybody has a right to their own body. That's a right, okay? It's just not respected. But we'll move on because um, out of New York City, uh, this is scary. Parking garage that collapsed right there, one dead. Uh, very, very treacherous situation there. And then you begin to think, what more? How stable are things? Here's what we know. One person dead, multiple injured in a deadly New York City parking garage collapse that happened in lower Manhattan on Tuesday afternoon. I want you to um, watch this. They're climbing up, you see them? Yeah. They're searching. I don't think anyone died. Yeah, there was someone stuck on the fire escape outside. They got down. Well, you, you heard um, one of the witnesses to, to some of this say, I don't think anybody died. Again, one person died in this New York City parking garage collapse. Took place on Ann Street near Nassau Street around 4 p.m. When according to senior FDNY officials, the second floor of a five-story parking garage collapsed into the first floor. Ultimately, the top floor would fall all the way down into the cellar in this pancake collapse and screams for a help could be heard in a cell phone video taken by a witness. Officials confirm one person, a worker in the building, died in that collapse. FDNY chief of fire operations, there he is, John M. Esposito, said this, as far as we can tell, so far there were six patients, six workers in the building at the time of the collapse, one worker was trapped on one of the upper floors. The FDNY was able to evacuate that person across the roof of another building. He was taken away from there. One worker died, four others were hospitalized, but were expected to recover. Esposito said, one of the victims could be seen taken away on a stretcher. Another worker refused medical attention at the scene. Very scary stuff. NBC News among those reporting this. Esposito described the rescue operation as, quote, extremely dangerous due to the unstable building and firefighters who had initially entered the building were forced to retreat as a result of the risk of instability. The department sent a newly added NYPD robotic dog known as DigiDog into the building to analyze the scene, make sure no one else was inside without putting in jeopardy the safety of first responders. 
Drones were also being used to get additional information from the scene, according to Esposito. Although Esposito said first responders believed everyone is accounted for, they will continue to search for any person. That's just horrific to think about. Possibly trapped in the crushed cars or amid the concrete rubble of the collapsed garage. NYC Department of Buildings Acting Commissioner Kazimir Belenchik described how the drone footage showed how the four-story building all the way pancaked, collapsed all the way to the cellar floor. There's more. He acknowledged that an act of violation on the building dated to 2003. Building's commissioner said an application was filed in 2010, but did not indicate whether that violation was corrected. There are some active permits on the building, one related to electrical work on the premises. Belenchik added, promising more details at a later time. That from Fox News. Our engineers deployed and are currently checking adjoining buildings and observing footage from drone pictures to identify possible reasons for the collapse. We're going to continuously review and research property profiles to understand the history of the building, certificate of occupancy, and all other records, and I will update this information. NYC Department of Buildings records show that the parking garage located at 57 Ann Street had 19 violations that had been completed or defaulted on, and another four that remained open, requiring a certificate of correction. WABC reported that the same parking garage owned by 57 Ann Street Realty Association, based in Great Neck, New York, had 64 violations with the Department of Buildings dating back to 1976. This is a tragedy, and I don't know that we know the proportions yet. We do know that one person lost, lost their lives. Okay, but so that's one building worker. But when you talk about a history of such violations, and again, we don't know what, what caused all this, but it reminds me not on the same scale when it comes to the mortality rate, but that condo collapsed down in Florida on the beach and they learned about maintenance that wasn't done and all kinds of violations. And I guess what I'm saying, Benny, is what, what good is there to have this department that oversees these things if the worst happens and we still don't know if work was completed on time or at all. Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate reality is all across the country, the number one priority is not necessarily like the safety or structural soundness of any particular building, but the profitability for real estate investors. And that is really always the way that it's been in the United States. I mean, real estate investors are some of the biggest donors to political campaigns on both sides for a reason. And so, while yes, we do have infrastructure in place to make sure that there are like building codes that are being met. Unfortunately, you see a lot of buildings across the country that face a lot of neglect, not to say that the violations that existed were necessarily the cause of the collapse, because we obviously don't know the cause of the collapse. But in general, speaking generally about the structural soundness and safeness of buildings across the country, there is a long term pattern that exists of um, you know, different building violations not being taken super seriously by city councils, uh, not being like super investigated of money and resources not really going into making sure that places are safe. Um, you know, all of these things are sort of systemic problems that are 
you know, really stemming from the underlying root problem that we fundamentally allow landlords and real estate investors to have too much political power and influence in this country. So long as we are making decisions, you know, at the electoral level about what is going to be the most profitable for real estate investments, we are always going to be uh, missing things when it comes to safety and things like that. Wow. I think it's well said. Again, there's a lot more that we need to learn here um, and will, and we'll keep following it. But you just feel for people who just went to work that day. Some will get back to the loved ones injured and then mentally, how would you feel if you were part of that? But at least one is is never coming home. This is Indisputable with Dr. Rashad Ritchie. He has the day off. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad. And Benny Carollo joins us. Breakdown contributor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed and for Dr. Rashad Ritchie, who has the day off. Benny Carollo joins us, host of Bleep Blomp. I still want to say Benny, but Bleep Blomp Ben, as well as Breakdown contributor. Love having you on. Great discussion. Uh, let's get some comments, Benny. Uh, TYT member. Uh, about uh, the Netflix beef stars and the showrunners remaining silent on David Cho and that 2014 podcast where he thought it was so funny to joke about a rape that he now claims didn't happen. On the DOJ website, they admit that probably only one out of every four sexual attacks are reported because women are so abused when they report them and that even when the rape is easily proven, most rapists get little to no prison time. Mickey C., the silver-haired dragon... We have to stop with this false accusations. Uh, stop. People act like one out of two is or more. Most are false. It's not true. Women are abused. Thank you, Mickey C. One dead, multiple injured in the uh, New York City. Oh, no. Let's go with Jonathan Majors now because you have strong reaction on that. Jonathan Majors dropped by management and PR team. Corey S2 says he's innocent until proven guilty. Tasty cake. And I don't know how you feel about this comment, but make it. He should have chosen a better partner, but she legit destroyed his career. Shaking my damn head. I don't know, Tasty Cake. We don't know what happened in there, but who destroyed whose career? We'll see. One more. Will Williams says this is BS double standard. Against black men, what about the guy who played the Flash? He's been in all kinds of domestic assault against women, but he has no problem playing Ant-Man. Hmm. Okay. We'll move on because it is that time. Where we want to talk about this next story. A male Karen smashing beer cases at a Walmart. I wish a Karen would. You want to call the police on him for having a barbecue on a In Sunday? You're going to feel free! Back off! I'm going to tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. What the f***? 
That's why he's destroying the bush light. He's destroying the bush light, dude. <laughs> what? And he leaves to cheers. Okay. Cheers. Oh, all the beer is spilled. I have no idea why so interested in this particular case, but Justin, Jay Dustin, rather, D. Kane, the man seen smashing the beer in that viral video at Walmart in Topeka, Kansas, has now been charged with exposing himself in public, according to Topeka police. The video has now been viewed over 5 million times. So much interest in this. The incident happened April 17th, 9 p.m. at the Walmart located at 1501 Southwest Wanamaker Road, according to police. Officers learned that an adult male identified as J. Dustin D. Kane, 44, of Topeka, was in the store throwing things at people. A lot. Video of the incident, which ends with Kane being let out of the Walmart by police, was shared widely. On social media, with some users suggesting that his actions may have been part of the wider boycott against brewing company Anheuser-Busch after one of its brands, Bud Light, partnered with trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney for promotion. That's all it was, folks, a promotion. Okay. Some even said Kane had destroyed the wrong beer by smashing up cases of Bush Light. But the product is also made by Anheuser-Busch. Police said Kane was arrested, charged with criminal damage to property, felony battery, other charges, including exposing sex organs to another over the age of 16. Not clear if Kane's alleged exposure happened during the Walmart incident, and police have not disclosed a motive for the destruction of the beer. Benny, react to the footage, but also our collective interest in it. Five million views of this. Why? Yeah, I mean, it really speaks to the moment because, like, look, like, we need to really, like, understand that that whole ad campaign with Dylan Mulvaney, it happened, like, almost three weeks ago now at this point. It was for March Madness. It was for March Madness. It is, we are, like, halfway through April, more than halfway through April, right? And so the right wing has completely lost its grip on reality because apparently just the reminder that a trans woman exists on a beer can is enough to send them to a frenzy. And I think one of the reasons why so many people are watching this right now is because like this is just a very clear moment of like like this conceptualizes like the entire right wing in this moment where it's just this belligerent rage over something that has no effect on you by a person who himself is apparently accused of, was arrested for that indecent exposure, which is like literally what these people are trying to run around, like calling people, like calling queer people groomers and stuff like that. And it is just like, it is just the peak fragile masculinity that drives the Republican party. And like one of the things that just really gets these right-wingers upset about the existence of trans people, trans women in particular, and why it really hit close to home to them for this beer, like on this beer can, is is really because like fundamentally they have this conception of masculinity as something that's inherently superior and deserving and that femininity is something that they only tolerate because they view women as baby factories and useful to them right 
And so the idea of somebody, you know, like myself, a trans woman saying, hey, actually, femininity is pretty cool and is actually desirable and has value in and of itself already just undermines their entire identity, their complete sense of self-importance that's built on literally just misogyny. And then throw a picture of a trans woman on a beer can for one ad campaign. And then all of a sudden, what a lot of Americans think is a real symbol of masculinity, right? That is to say beer. And all of a sudden, it's just a complete utter collapse. And they feel like something that should be entirely centered towards them for a brief moment isn't centering them. And like, it's just this complete identity collapse for the Republican Party. And most people don't care, right? The overwhelming majority of people don't care. But for the few people that do, they have lost their grip on reality and they have lost their ability to talk about or think about anything else. And it is honestly just speaks to how deeply unhinged the Republican Party is today and how deeply unhinged right-wingers more broadly are today in their weird fixation on trans people. It is unhinged. And I don't know if they were ever based in reality to begin with, because the existence and the world order is built on a lie. So the minute you're right, Benny, focus comes off. Well, the lie becomes the truth to these people. And they start to say, if you're buzzed anyway, what do you care? What do you care who's on the can? If you're citizen the idea with some of these people to get buzzed, leave people alone. Wow, I just, I find it fascinating. Questions came through about how can we stay motivated if we're not going to get a bonus? What can we do? What can we do? Some of them were nice and some of them were not so nice. So I'm going to address this head on. The most important thing we can do right now is focus on the things that we can control. None of us could have predicted COVID. None of us could have predicted supply chain. None of us could have predicted bank failures. But what we can do is stay in front of our customers, provide the best customer service we can, get our orders out our door, treat each other well, be kind, be respectful, focus on the future because it will be bright. It's not good to be in a situation we're in today, but we're not gonna be here forever. It is going to get better. So lead, lead by example, treat people well, talk to them, be kind and get after it. Don't ask about what are we gonna do if we don't get a bonus? Get the damn $26 million. Spend your time and your effort thinking about the $26 million we need and not thinking about what you're going to do if we don't get a bonus. All right? Can I get some commitment for that? I would appreciate that. I had an old boss who said to me one time, you can visit Pity City, but you can't live there. So people, leave Pity City. Let's get it done. Thank you. Have a great day. She received a $6.4 million bonus while, according to the narrative, denying bonuses to her staff members. Um, she is the CEO of Miller Knoll, an overpriced furniture store. Okay. And while she's telling people to work with her, I don't live in Pittyville. Uh, she was pocketing $6.9 million in bonus money. This is what happens when Karen is your CEO, okay? Uh, it is rare, but it does go down. It is interesting to note 
Uh, let's put up her picture again, full mass here. Uh, this is when she got just really indignant about why these individuals are concerned about a petty bonus when they need to be concerned about making her more money. She said, focus on the $26 million that I need to make this year while you're focusing on your bonus. Okay, this was a hell of a thing. Um, I actually thought it was a parody at first and then, you know, we checked it out. Doesn't seem to be, seems to be an actual Karen that's a CEO. Sharon, thoughts on this? I too thought it of SNL, Doc. <laughs> right. But at the voice, it was just so grating. I was channeling Eddie Murphy in the 80s, like he told Bill Cosby. Okay, she need to have a coke and a smile. Right. And, and I'll, you remember the rest. That's wow. Right. Yeah. All the right. Audacity. I mean, 6.4 million, madam. I mean, come on. You could not have given your employees any level of bonus just to keep your word to honor whatever promise you made. Love is Blind contestants, this is fascinating too, are claiming abuse by production. A lot of people talking about this when it follows the technical mishaps, delay of its season four live reunion special, the Netflix reality show Love is Blind has new controversy now. In a new report, multiple contestants spoke out about the conditions inside the Netflix series produced by Kinetic Content, claiming that they have been put through emotional warfare. On Love is Blind, young singles go on blind dates for 10 days during which they must decide if they want to get engaged or go home. The couples only get to see each other once they're engaged. They're then sent on a group vacation before they're expected to return to their hometowns and plan their weddings. The show's high stakes leave a real life impact on the contestants long after the show airs on Netflix. You thrust us into this situation without any support and everything's amplified, season two, Nick Thompson said. It literally ruins lives. Wow. Season two contestant Danielle Rule stated she was surprised she passed the psychological screening since she'd allegedly disclosed a past suicide attempt. Rule, who married and then divorced Nick Thompson, claimed that during filming, she tried to leave after having a panic attack, hiding in the closet and telling producers she didn't feel mentally stable enough to stay. Quoting, I kept telling them, I don't trust myself. I've tried committing suicide before. I'm having suicidal thoughts. I don't think I can continue in this. Season one contestant, Danielle Druin, alleged, quote, the sleep deprivation was real. I feel like they do it on purpose because they're trying to break you. They want you on your edge. The report also included claims that participants didn't have enough access to food or water. Isn't this a show about love? It sounds like some other show that where you survive, you're supposed to survive things, okay? But this is this show is all the rage and a lot of people are talking about it and not a lot of people are unpacking it. The latest story comes 10 months after former cast member Jeremy Hartwell filed a lawsuit against both the streaming service and production company. Inhumane working conditions were cited in the lawsuit. The lawsuit claims the contestants were paid around $7.14 per hour, around half of California's minimum wage, since they regularly worked up to 20 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Response for the production company behind the show, Kinetic Content, responded to the report telling Variety in a statement, the well-being of our participants is of paramount importance to Kinetic. We have rigorous protocols in place to care for each person before, during, and after filming. While we will not speculate as to his motives for filing the lawsuit, there is absolutely no merit to Mr. Hartwell's allegations, and we will vigorously defend against his claims. Benny, it sounds like from everybody else is doing a lot of talking here, there could definitely be merits to the claims here. This show and its production house has got to be getting rich or rich s off of this production why not treat people the right way or is that the secret sauce to producing this kind of reality television yeah i honestly think that it is kind of the secret sauce unfortunately because like look as somebody who like admittedly has watched all of these shows and the show the ultimatum which is hosted by the same two people um like these these shows are evil, right? Like it's very very clear that these shows are evil. Like if you watch them, you're like, wow, this is like, like there's no way that this show is like mentally healthy. And when you actually like you know start reading through like how this operates, and even if you just understand the general structure of the show, you recognize that the whole purpose of a reality show, especially like this one where the intention is to get somebody to marry somebody over an extra like incredibly short period of time. You have to put people where they're you're creating a state of hyper reality, right? Where everything kind of feels like this is sort of the like defining feature of your life and kind of like nothing else exists. And like, honestly, like uh, as somebody who was in the military, I got to say a lot of the vibe feels like when I was in like basic training, where which is another situation of like hyper reality, where you live in a completely controlled environment with very clear objectives that you're supposed to be meeting. Everybody around you is also be also supposed to be meeting those same objectives. And like, so there's this sort of like shared sort of like intentional group think around, you have to go do this. You have to go on these 10 dates. You have to find somebody that you want to get married to. And like, you know, even just like pumping the brakes a little bit and being like, wait a minute. Should you be getting married to somebody? Maybe you should like hop on a Discord call with all your friends and say like, hey, is this person cool and normal? None of that's happening in an environment like this where it's so controlled. And then you throw something like alcohol on top of it and you've got like a completely different ball game. And it just like it's very, very easy to see how a show like this could very, very much uh, be the perfect environment for like just toxic behavior and manipulativeness and could be incredibly damaging to people. Wow, I find that your analogy there with basic training, I've never gone through it. So so to hear you talk about it in that way and say this element is relatable, I find it wildly fascinating. But then it's so successful and, and you and others are admitting to watching this. And yes, that, that's not the first time you use the word evil to go along with it. I think it's refreshingly honest, but then why not just at least pay them? You can't pay them for this trauma? Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, they're making a ton of money on a show like that, but that's kind of why reality shows are so big right now. Aside from the fact that like, I think that they just announced a big writer's strike. So unfortunately we might see a lot more reality shows coming up. Reality shows don't really quite require a ton in terms of writing. They're usually really relatively cheap to run, um, you know, because you don't need as much when it comes to like the production efforts and stuff like that, generally speaking. And so one of the reasons why we see so much reality content today is because it's cheaper, is because one of the things that they're selling to contestants is, hey, 
you're like a random Instagram influencer. You want to be on TV and people will come into that and not necessarily understand what they're worth, not necessarily understand what they're getting themselves into. And so reality shows really are like like the perfect model for creating television under capitalism because you find people who are desperate to be on TV, uh, who don't know necessarily what they're getting into. The production is relatively cheap to actually do. And if the writers are going on strike and you have to worry about that, well then, hey, you've got a cast of people who are very replaceable every single season and even from episode to episode can be replaceable because it's a reality show. Um, and so it's like, it is a show that is designed very much for capitalism where the only purpose is profit and exploitation. Well, I'm for the contestants getting theirs. I, I once sat down with Mona Scott, this uh, extraordinary producer, the Love and Hip Hop series, others. I think she does that SWV versus Escape. Um, and she said, there's very few Cardi B's. Remember, Cardi B was on Love and Hip Hop, but she went with a purpose to push her brand and what she wanted to do. And then she got out of there. She escaped the island of reality television. I hope everybody stays well or gets well and gets the help and gets paid. Two cheerleaders shot for approaching the wrong car. That's when we come right back. This is Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Benny Carollo joins us now as a special guest co-host. We're right back. Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Let's get you some viewer comments. Um, TYT members, a lot of you had something to say about the male Karen smashing all of those Beer cases at Walmart, why do this? Worst case scenario, Dragon says, thank you, Benny. I've been saying that forever. Transphobia is based in misogyny. Well, we really we really need that reminder about what's really going on here, okay? You can view that footage five million times, but you need to know what's behind it. So thank you, worst case. Lynn says, I bet Beer Karen worked up a thirst after that. It probably. Probably. You spilled all the drinks though, didn't you, fool? YouTube, Jen Hacks also says this about the male Karen. I don't like Bud Light, but hey, that's a waste of beer and big on stupidity. I agree, Jen, I agree. Now those cheerleaders, two cheerleaders shot for simply approaching the wrong car. None of this makes any sense, folks, none of it. Two teenage cheerleaders, Peyton Washington, Heather Roth, were shot after one said she mistook the suspect's vehicle as her own in a supermarket parking lot near Texas's capital. Pedro Tello Rodriguez Jr. arrested for the shooting. The young woman drove from the Round Rock area to Woodlands Elite Cheer Company in Oak Ridge three times each week to practice. They used the Elgin HEB as a carpool lot for the approximately 360 mile round trip. Just after midnight, cheerleader Heather Roth said she got out of her friend's car and opened the door to a vehicle she believed to be her own in the HEB parking lot. Okay, this happens, it's a mistake. So far, I've not heard anything weird here, okay? Nothing weird. Roth said there was a man sitting in the passenger seat, so she initially panicked, thinking a stranger was inside her car got back into her friend's vehicle. When she noticed the man approaching their vehicle, 
She said she rolled down the window to apologize, telling him she thought it was her car. Brawl said the man threw up his hands, pulled out a gun, and started shooting. Roth was struck by a bullet, but was treated and released at the scene. Peyton Washington was shot twice, badly injured, according to a GoFundMe spearheaded by her cheerleading company, Woodland's Elite Generals. Washington is stable, recovering in the ICU, according to the cheerleading company. Washington is doing well today after suffering from a ruptured spleen, which was removed. And she has damage to her pancreas and diaphragm. That from Lynn Cheer, the managing partner of that cheer program, That's what she told CNN. In upstate New York, Kevin Monahan, the man who's charged with fatally shooting 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis when she and three friends mistakenly drove down his driveway in search of a friend's house. Monahan was arrested on Sunday afternoon after holding up in his home for an hour as being charged with second-degree murder. Why? Speaking with CNN on Tuesday, Washington County Sheriff Jeffrey Murphy said that Monaghan has proven difficult and spoken about it very little with officials. When deputies arrived at his home on Sunday, he refused to speak with them, could only be extricated with the eventual assistance of the New York State Police Special Operations Response Team. Sheriff also noted that Monaghan retained a lawyer before even leaving his home and has yet to make any statement about the situation. Monaghan, quite frankly, has not shown any remorse in this case. This shooting makes this at least the third incident this week in which young people who've made an apparent mistake were met with gunfire. Here are the GoFundMe links for the victims. It's important we put them up, and many people are giving. Many people are giving. What they have in common? Simple. Young, innocent, if anything nefarious in these situations that led to this, and all victims. For what? And that's really, I need you to frame it, Benny, because. It's not just the mistake. It's what the sheriff said in that last case. No remorse. If you just made a mistake, you you would feel horrible, right? If you ran over someone's pet that ran into the street, you feel horrible. If you're if you're human, I think. No remorse. What do you make of any of this? Honestly, it's hard not to immediately just blame like the political right and the type of environment that outlets like Fox News try to create, because ultimately, what are they doing, right? They create this like deranged panic among their followers, right? They tell everybody that they need guns, that there's some sort of menacing threat. And then you have these people that are freaking out about the woke mob. That's a phrase they use all the time, woke mob, right? And who do they include in the woke mob? Like quite literally, they think young people just across the board are like all these like evil communists or whatever, right? We obviously know that they hate black and brown folks. We obviously know that they hate women. I mean, quite literally, these people cannot see like a female lead in a Marvel movie without freaking out. You know, they can't see a female Eminem without freaking out. I mean, for the love of God, it's a cartoon character, right? And so, 
like fundamentally, when you take those people and then you have like an entire right wing media space that is trying to like stoke up fears and say that there's going to be a civil war and try to like tell them that like, oh, they're coming for your house or whatever, you know, you're going to get burglarized all the time or whatever. Like all of this panic, right? Like this racist panic, this misogynistic panic, this fear about young people being too gay, right? All of these things stacked on top of each other when you already have like a group of people who are like, to be entirely honest, like Americans are not necessarily known for being the most stable folks like across the board. We don't really have like uh, we don't really have like a, a great reputation when it comes to responsible gun ownership or just responsibility in general. You know, you push this main character syndrome. And like I can tell you, I've known a lot of people personally in my life that are convinced that they themselves are John Rambo. And uh, unfortunately, there's an entire media space that is willing to indulge those sort of self-delusions. Um, and so, yeah, like how could somebody like do something like this and not feel remorse? My guess is, right, and granted this is a guess, but my guess is this person has been drinking all of this ridiculous right-wing Kool-Aid and like is unironically just terrified of basically leaving his house at this point. It's to me why these stand your ground laws were created. You don't even really need that law. Why do you need a stand your ground law? If someone breaks into your home and they mean harm or death to you, your family, you can defend yourself. There's, we don't need stand your ground. These laws were created so that you could get away with this kind of thing, so that you could blow human beings away, claim that you were in fear, so when a 16-year-old Kansas City black teenager, ding dong, you can take a long time to answer and then shoot through the door. And when you hit that teenager, I think it was the left front forehead, and that teenager's on the ground, you're still in fear, it's delusional, and you shoot him again. It's doesn't make any sense and therefore it's nonsensical. I'll give you the last word. I, my heart breaks for the, what do you tell kids? I had someone ask me that. Do we now tell them be careful of ringing the wrong doorbell? I don't think there's, we can't keep telling them everything because there's just something else that pops up, Benny. Yeah, I mean, like we're an impossible situation because unfortunately we don't live in a democracy. Like like fundamentally we do not live in a democracy. Look at states like Tennessee, for example. 8% of the entire voting age population is denied the right to vote due to prior felony voting laws. And we all know that the like a huge chunk of those is just ridiculous nonsense, war on drug, uh, charges and and like like you know throw that on top of our racist policing system and so like fundamentally between all the gerrymandering between all of the money that's in politics between like all of the ways our system is rigged against actual democracy like fundamentally what do you tell people I don't really know like I don't really know Be because perfect. most people are against what these people are doing most people want gun control most people want to move forward and progress but we're just kind of stuck I guess. It's ironic because, you know, that there's that group of people that I don't think is as big as everyone makes it out to be, but they sure are disruptive. It says, well, we'll take back our country. It's ironic. The, the other people need to take back the sense of humanity and dignity and, and life. That definitely needs to be taken back, but not in the way they're talking about. It is just utterly 
horrific. And I think the other point that I hear you making that I couldn't agree with more is in this case, it is like a war against the young and this open-mindedness. Too many young people are getting it. What did the former governor, was Scott Walker, said, we, we gotta keep them from voting. We gotta indoctrinate them another way, paraphrasing. That's kind of what he said. We have to shake the decency out of these young people who believe that trans, so what? Let people live and love. Interracial dating, remember? I mean, they, they just, won't they? Well, I listen, you can only live so long. You can only live so long. And I wonder when some of this, this disgusting way of thinking, this mentality will die off. This is Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed in for Dr. Rashad Ritchie. Much more to come. Yes, an establishment is set to open in Atlanta, Georgia. Ooh. Why didn't they think of this sooner? Popular UK and Australian pop-up restaurant is making its way to the United States now. Karen's Diner will be in Atlanta come October. Got to visit this, baby. Karen's Diner doesn't care and will prove it. In October, serving up burgers, fries, a soda, games, and rude servers singing, well, slinging karma, if you will, at customers. They might sing it too. $47 per person is the charge. It appears that price doesn't include tip, which you may not want to leave anyway, given the service you know you're willingly paying for. Tickets are non-refundable. You're gonna get what Karen gives you and you're not gonna make a complaint about it. And if you do, nobody cares. I added that. The pop-up diner experience takes place in an undisclosed location on Peachtree Center Avenue in downtown Atlanta between October 14th and October 15th. Get Karen while you can. Children under 16 are allowed until five, then it becomes adults only. So I guess it amps up after 5 p.m. Okay, they really are gonna pop off. Pop-up diner experience takes place, as we said, this October in Atlanta, and while Karen's does promise their signature rude service, according to their website. At no time will employees be allowed to body shame, sexually harass, or reply with racist, sexist, homophobic, oof, or ableist language. Is it really a Karen though, Jessica? Let's pause there. Is it really a Karen if we're not getting the authentic Karen experience? I don't want to hear those things, but they're out there. And if you're going to call yourself Karen's diner and embody the true spirit of Karenicity, why would you cut out the meat, if you will? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out which way this goes. It's a weird chicken or the egg dilemma, right? Is the, the owners of the restaurant and the servers, are they the Karens? Or is it supposed to prevent someone, someone from coming in and acting like a Karen? Because if mm. your server can be rude to you and you're not getting the kind of customer service treatment that Karens are used to, then you're probably not gonna go to a place like this. So I, I'm confused as to which way that goes. Funny that kids are allowed before five. Seems like not a family-friendly environment, but if I was a kid, I think I'd be into this. Chuck oh, yeah. E. Cheese who? I'd be like, let's go to the Karen Diner. But after five adults only, I bet stuff gets weird when people start drinking at the Karen Diner. Instead of happy hour, they have you know cranky entitled hour.
Welcome back to Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed alongside Benny Carollo, who is a contributor to The Breakdown and 100% spot on with the commentary. And I can tell you that the TYT members agree with you about the two cheerleaders shot for approaching the wrong car. Sort snog, Mr. Stay-at-home dragon says, cheerleaders shot down in the street for approaching the wrong car. Rich old white guy gets all the money. Wednesday in America. <clears throat> but Rollins says, we die from conservative imaginations. I think that's very true. And YouTube member, C. Michael Henson, thank you so much. Someone accidentally opened my passenger door and sat down. Once he realized he was in the wrong car, he immediately apologized. I was caught off guard, but said, no problem. Didn't try to harm him. One more, Meredith, Relina, Dragon, Putvin. Thank you to you as well. It's if Majors loss, loses, rather, talking about this is about Jonathan Majors. If Majors loses his MCU role, he's toast. Well, somebody seems like toast. We'll keep following it. Meredith, we'll keep following it. Iowa Senate passes a pro-child labor bill. What are the details here? I'll tell you. The Iowa legislature went into session earlier Tuesday morning, debating none other than child labor laws with the passing of SF 542, a bill centered around youth employment. In late March, the Iowa Federation of Labor, alongside several other unions, protested at the Iowa State Capitol. That was just one of many protests held around the state in an effort to stop this. It's not stopping, not yet. So exactly what would this bill do, right? Well, the bill would let the directors of the Iowa Department of Education or Iowa Workforce Development grant exceptions, allowing 14 to 17 year olds to work in jobs currently banned for minors, as long as they're part of an approved training program with adequate supervision and safety precautions. On Tuesday morning, session opened at 3.36 a.m. and the vote on SF 542 in the Iowa Senate happened at 4.52 a.m. It passed by a vote of 32 to 17. All Democrats voted against it, as well as two Republicans. Bill allows 14-year-olds to work six-hour night shifts, allows 15-year-olds to work in plants, on assembly lines, moving items up to 50 pounds, and allows 16 and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol. Democrats argue the bill will increase the risk of workplace accidents by exposing inexperienced kids to more dangerous work environments. They tried unsuccessfully to amend the bill to offer additional workers compensation benefits for teenagers who get injured on the job. This from the Des Moines Register. Iowa Senator Janice Weiner of Johnston spoke out against the bill saying, I wouldn't want my granddaughter serving alcohol or getting an exception to do hazardous work in the name of workplace learning. A workplace accident can happen in the blink of an eye takes mere seconds for a red iron beam to fall. Iowans should not be putting our kids, and they are kids, in dangerous situations. But Iowa Senator Adrian Dickey of Jefferson says this. This bill, we are strengthening and providing protections to our youth. We are not forcing them into slave labor. We are not selling our children. We are not even requiring them to work. Senate amended the bill early Tuesday to say minors could not serve alcohol in bars. Previous version of the bill would have allowed 16 to 17 year olds to serve alcohol in both bars and restaurants. 
It was not intended to put minors in Tom's Tavern, slinging drinks, rather to allow these youths to work in Renee's restaurant, Dickey said. The Senate also amended the bill Tuesday to clarify that 16 and 17-year-olds cannot work in strip clubs, although state Senate, rather, Republicans said that it has never been allowed under current law. The bill would let kids under 16 work up to six hours a day, two more than the current maximum of four hours a day, and they could work longer into the evening until 9 p.m. during the school year, 11 p.m. during the summer. 16 and 17 year olds could work the same number of hours per day as adults. But also create a committee to study the possibility of letting teens 14 and older get a special driver's permit to drive to work. Benny, I think you should you should speak on all of this first. Yeah, I mean, this is just deeply shameful. I mean, there's so many layers to this. Like, a part of it goes to what we were talking about earlier, which is really just the attack on youth that we're seeing from the political right right now, where, I mean, I guess they think that children are spending too much time paying attention to school or thinking about school or learning things in general, so they want to send them to work. Then it goes to the layer of misogyny that we were talking about earlier, which is, do you understand what having like a 16 year old serving alcohol would actually look like in real life? There's already a massive, massive problem of people working in the service industry having to deal with a ridiculous amount of sexual harassment from customers, even more so anytime there's an environment where there's alcohol involved. And so to have a 16 year old serving alcohol is to put them in an incredibly dangerous situation, right? It is already a dangerous situation if it's just somebody who's 18 that's serving alcohol, much less somebody who is 16, okay? And they are just literally less likely to know how to respond. They're less likely to understand what to do and to respond, like all of these different things. And so then you have the layer of quite literally putting children in active danger by just the hazards of being in, in different workplaces that have more hazardous conditions, depriving a uh, you know, children of sleep by extending the amount of hours that they can work. All of these things are major problems. And it literally cuts into people's ability to get an education, to go and just finish high school. And so really there's so many layers to this, but fundamentally, this is an attack on the safety of children. This is an attack on the rights of children to live lives that are comforted and sheltered enough as children that they can just get an education, that they can live their lives and figure out who they want to be when they turn 18 and go to college or whatever. And so it is deeply sickening and shameful that Republicans are willing to put children in this type of danger, especially the fact that they didn't even consider the context of potentially putting 16-year-olds in bars until after they had to go and amend it. But it's even more sickening. Well, at the same time, Republicans are trying to strip what agency like that children should actually have away from them by denying them to have any type of identity, by saying that they're not allowed to mention being gay or trans in school or risk being outed by their teachers. All of this is happening at the same time. We're quite really literally, we're quite quite literally, they're trying to force children into the workplace, into dangerous situations, while also denying them to have even the most basic level of agency or autonomy to just say what their name is or what their pronouns are, just basic, basic things like that. We are going so far back and trying to what's next? Do we should we just drive around in, in a horse and buggy? Because Back then, there were no labor laws to protect children, and there were not their property. And it seems that some, and I think you're right, by identifying that they are on the right, believe that children, children are just property, and that if we need more workers here 
or or we want to marry them off and and maybe get dowry, some money or something. I don't know why these people are insisting in some jurisdictions that at least one in Missouri, a certain rep, that children are such property that you can do with them as you wish and everyone should stay out of it while at the same time not allowing children to have any say. I mean, when my daughter, Fanny, was just little, I felt that she she wasn't my property and she deserved some say. So if she wanted to go out that day with me and put on a, a red sock and a pink one and her sweater on backwards, I didn't see what's so what's so wrong with that. Is there something wrong with that? At what point do you listen to a child's wishes and desires? And did anyone even do a focus group on what children maybe want or talk to people who've had experiences working as children. I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it boils down to whether or not you think children are property or a responsibility. I think morally decent people view children as a responsibility. And now granted, that means like you have to do some things for children and children aren't going to be able to make all the decisions for themselves. Yeah. But also, like we do recognize that if you're a parent, you are responsible to your children. You don't own them and you don't have any right to control literally every single thing that they do because they're not gonna grow up to be healthy if you try to do that anyway. And so like fundamentally, it's just all about this mentality of property versus responsibility. Wow, and that's that any parent I think, and we never get it perfect, but I do feel an enormous responsibility because she didn't ask to be here. It's just, I just, well, whoever you want to be, I want to support that. As long as you're a good person, you don't have to be me. You don't have to be, just be you. And and I think we've got to be supportive of that. But there's a whole group of people out there who are hell-bent on turning children into their little mini-me soldiers. And it's just so sick, exploited, endangered. And it's just so sick. Tell people where they can find you and your wonderful commentary and everything that is gloriously you. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Benjamin Carollo, and you can also check me out on YouTube at TYT Breakdown. And can we trademark the laugh? I don't know if it's allowed, but I think we should. <laughs> there it is. I love it, and it should be trademarked. Um, it's beautiful, and so are you, and we appreciate you always. Thank you so much for joining us here on Indisputable, and thank you to Dr. Richie for, for just allowing me to sit in on this beautiful program and interact with so many of you. We hear you, we love your comments, and I just love to be part of something. I feel like I learn something every single time I sit in the chair, learn a lot of things and a lot more to go. Um, Jonathan Majors, where will that end up? That was our lead story today. Doesn't look good. And we'll keep talking about Hollywood and that, well, disparity in the treatment of others, um, along with so many other things. Thanks for joining us on Indisputable. I'm Sharon Reed, in for Doc. Appreciate you.